It's good to be back home. Got back into Vermont last night, and there was that sense of relief coming back over the ferry. See the Green Mountains again. Uh, Thank you to all of you who've been praying for our family. Many of you probably heard our car broke down in Michigan on these travels to visit family, and we've been piecing together rides and rental cars. Uh, Katie and the kids are still in uh, upstate New York with her family, and we have what appears to be a vehicle lined up uh, that she'll purchase next Tuesday. So getting close to the end of that saga. But thanks for those who've reached out and, and we're praying this past week for us. Like I said, it's good to be home. Um, I appreciate Dom. I, I wasn't here to hear his message, but I did hear the podcast and appreciated uh, his heart and his careful study and exposition of, of Scripture presenting and, and helping us explore this idea that we enter into and we, we worship in the presence of a holy God and what that holiness signifies. For the remainder of the summer, July and August, we will be looking in particular at the book of Leviticus. And, and kind of the refrain of that book is that, that God is a holy God and he desires his people to be a holy people as well. So we'll be, we'll be asking, how is that possible? How is it possible to enter into the presence of God and to worship him and to belong to him as his people? This morning we're going to be making our way through the first five chapters and we'll, we'll be looking uh, only at a handful of verses from each chapter. So I'd encourage you, if you have time, to, to go back and read that, that whole section uh, on your own. But, but the... The section we're looking at this morning in particular has to deal with the offerings that the people of Israel were commanded to bring to God in his tabernacle. There is a a story about a family who was visiting a new church one Sunday morning, and they had along with them their five-year-old son. And so he was sort of taking everything in, observing what was happening in the service, and at one point, the offering was taken, and, and the, pa- the plate was, was passed in front of his family, and he, he watched his father drop a contribution in the plate, and kind of thought about that. And the rest of the service continued, the final hymn was sung, the benediction was said, and the family went out to their vehicle for the drive home. And as soon as they sat down in the car and the door shut, the father just started complaining. And he said, oh man, that church was way too hot. And the music was way too loud. And and the preacher, the preacher was way too long. And the boy was listening to his father and listened for a while longer. And and after a moment, he finally took the courage to interrupt his father. And he said, Dad, you know, I know, but you got to admit that that really wasn't all that bad. It only cost you a dollar. You know, you get what you pay for, I guess. <laughs> the joke made me think about bringing my own offerings to church as uh, a young child about that age. When I was five or six, seven years old, my parents would give us a dollar or two for chores that we did around the house. And usually, always in that dollar or two, you know, a quarter or 50 cents was set aside on the dresser and it would wait there until Sunday morning when we got dressed for church and, and we were able to bring that offering ourselves, right? And there was a, 
you know, that was a significant amount of money to a little kid, but there was a, a sense of, of reverence, there was a sense of attachment to what was being offered in that gift. Of course, today we have more sophisticated ways to bring our gifts and offerings, right? I don't haul an armful of chains to church, which I'm sure the ushers appreciate, but I bring our checkbook, or even more recently our family has started using the online giving page at JCC to give our our gifts and our tithes. But I have to admit that the the farther I am removed from the the physicality of that act of of giving, of offering, of bringing something to the Lord as gift, right, the easier it becomes to to lose sight of the fact that that is an invitation to worship God, that there is is a, a, a seriousness to what's being done, right, there is an invitation there to, to con- confess that, that I am entrusting this gift to God. It's a recognition that, that I, in fact, belong to God as, as his creature, as, his, as part of his people. And, and our gifts are meant to express this sense of relationship we have with the living God. Today, as we begin the book of Exodus in chapter 1, we will see outlined a whole series of gifts or offerings prescribed for the people of Israel. But I think it's important to get a sense of of where Leviticus is picking up from. Leviticus follows just after the conclusion of Exodus. And in many ways, the the two books are joined. They're, They're sort of meant to be read continuously. And so at the end of Exodus, we have Israel celebrating their their one-year anniversary, if you will, of their departure and their deliverance out of Egypt. And in the past year, God had brought them out of Pharaoh's hand. He had brought them through the Red Sea. He had sustained them with, with water and food in the desert. He had given them his law. He had entered into to covenant relationship with his people. And then at the end of Exodus, he directs them to build this incredible tabernacle, right? a, a place where they will meet with, where they will worship God. And at the very end of Exodus, when the tabernacle is complete, the last thing that happens is this incredible cloud of glory descends on that place. And Israel suddenly has a new dilemma facing them. How do they exist? How do they live up close and personal with the presence of a holy God? With all of that glory in their midst? Is that even possible for an ordinary group of human beings? Is it safe to approach God? And so what follows is the book of Leviticus... Right? In, in many ways, it's a book given to describe how a holy God creates a people capable of, of entering into relationship with him. Capable of becoming holy as he is holy. And so Leviticus 1, chapter 1, verse 1 begins in this way. It says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, that place where his glory had just descended. And he said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, 
Bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And this opening first two verses sort of set off the next basically seven chapters of of detailed lists of the kinds of offerings Israel is to bring. There are offerings for sin. There are offerings designed to make Israel purified and holy and set apart. There are offerings designed for Israel to express gratitude and thanksgiving. There are offerings meant to to allow them to feast in the presence of God. But this morning what I want to consider is why God has given these means. What what do these offerings and, and the reason behind why God has given them, what do they suggest about what it looks like to be in relationship with the God of Israel? What does it mean, how is it possible for an ordinary people to enter into relationship, enter into the presence of an extraordinary, an uncommon, a holy God? So as we look at Leviticus 1 through 5, let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, we confess that you are a holy God and we desire to be your holy people. But we need your mercy, we need your kindness, we need the provision of your care for us to do that. Lord, we thank you for the record of your provision of offerings and means and ways for the people of Israel to approach you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect on the invitation you have given to us today to approach you and to enter into your presence in a similar way. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach now, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. In chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we find a description of different kinds of food offerings. And they are gifts taken directly from, from the harvests, from the crops, or from the herds of the people of Israel. And the book of Leviticus says about each one of these kinds of offerings that when they are offered, they they become a pleasing aroma, a kind of incense, a fragrance that pleases God. And the first of these food offerings is described in chapter 1 and is called a burnt offering. And it's because the entirety of what was offered was to be consumed or burnt up by the fire there in the tabernacle. Let me read to you just a selection of verses from, the, from, from here in chapter 1. The Lord said to Moses, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, If you take time to, to read the entirety of chapter 1 here, 
what you'll see described is an intensely personal and an intensely physical kind of offering. As one Old Testament scholar suggests, the the rites described in the book of Leviticus make our contemporary worship services seem dull by comparison. Right? And it's, it's kind of graphic. I have to confess, when I read through Leviticus a couple months ago to, to begin preparing for this series, right, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of death, there's, there's a lot of things that it's, it's hard for us to, to appreciate or to understand in our contemporary situation. But imagine, if you will, coming into worship this morning, not, not bringing a checkbook in your purse Right, not getting an app out on your phone, right? but bringing with you a living creature. A creature that you have cared for, you've fed, you've raised from birth. And as you approach the place where you are to worship, Leviticus says that the people of Israel were not just to deposit that animal somewhere as an offering but that they were first to place their hand upon the head of that animal. And this is true of many of the sacrifices we hear described. They were to place their hand upon its head. And I think the the idea here is that they would identify, right? They were likely to look that animal in the eye and, and to make personal the act of offering, the act of substitution that's about to take place. That this animal was about to give its life in place of the worshiper. Right? There was a deep and personal connection in bringing this gift. And then Leviticus tells us that the worshiper, after placing its hand upon the animal's head, he was to slaughter the animal himself and then begin to divide up the animal into pieces and to offer each one to the priest who would then in turn take that part of the animal and place it on the altar to be consumed by fire. And verse 4 says that the purpose of this gift, the the meaning behind this first sacrifice, was that it would make atonement for the worshiper, make atonement for the people. Now burnt offerings were prescribed on a variety of occasions, but they were one of the most uh, consistent offerings given in the temple. And actually, it was outlined that they were to be the first offering given at the start of worship each day there at the tabernacle or later at the temple in Jerusalem. Old Testament expert Gordon Wenham says that, that the basic idea behind the burnt offering is that it is, it is providing atonement. It's, it's dealing with, with a kind of broad sense of, of sin in, in the life of the worshiper and in the life of Israel. And it, it's given in order to make fellowship between a sinful person and a holy God possible. Right? It's, it's the first thing that needs to be done in order to, to even venture or, or step into the presence of a living God. The burnt offering makes that relationship with God possible in the most basic sense. But as chapters 2 and 3 reveal that following the burnt offering, there were other kinds of offerings that were brought to the temple. Chapter 2 describes grain offerings. 
When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. So we're told that at the beginning of worship each morning there in the tabernacle, an an animal was to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. And then that offering was to be followed by one of these grain offerings. And again, a measure of, of olive oil and the finest flour was brought. And it was sprinkled with salt, as we're told in verse 13 here, chapter 2. And that first small portion was then taken again to the altar of the Lord. And it was burned before the Lord as a kind of incense. And it was burned in, in, a, in a sense to, to signify that Israel was... ...entering into covenant, that they stood in covenant relationship with God. And that this grain was given as a kind of tribute. Right? In this time and in this place, if you were to bring a portion of your crop, a portion of your harvest... ...often that was brought to the king, the ruler of, of that people. But again, Israel's ruler, Israel's king was their God, was Yahweh... And so they bring this grain offering into the presence of God. They offer the first portion to him, signifying that they are his people, that he is their king, that he has rescued them. He is their savior. They then took a much larger portion of that grain offering and they gave it to the priests who were attending worship that day. And the priests would take the grain and they would bake it and they would eat it themselves. And in one sense, this provided a kind of sustenance, a a kind of payment to the priest in order to to take care of them and meet their physical needs at the tabernacle. But at the same time, these gifts, too, they, they signify a kind of consecration, right? As the priest took that offering into their bodies, as another portion was, again, offered to the Lord uh, as, as incense, there was a sense that, that the priests who were eating the grain, the worshiper who was offering the grain, the Lord who was receiving it as an offering, right, that they were in covenant relationship together. And that God was the king over these people. So we have a burnt offering in chapter 1. We have a grain offering outlined in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we find this idea of a food offering or of a meal taken one step further in the fellowship offerings. Chapter 3, let me read a couple verses here. If your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present it, present before the Lord an animal without defect. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And there are more details there 
that I'll pick up in just a minute. We had the, the burnt offerings and the grain offerings that were prescribed for daily worship in the temple for a variety of different occasions. But these fellowship offerings in chapter 3, or peace offerings, depending on your translation, they were more discretionary. They were more voluntary. They were, they were done at the, the desire of a worshiper to come into the presence of God, to, to fulfill a vow in his presence, or sometimes simply to, to rejoice in the blessing the Lord had given them. As an act of gratitude, they could bring a fellowship or a peace offering. And the Hebrew word here in chapter 3 that, that names this kind of offering is derived from the Hebrew word for peace, for, for shalom. And that idea, as you've probably heard me talk about before, shalom is not just peace meaning the absence of conflict. Shalom means a, a flourishing, a, a wholeness, of, a, a totality of well-being. And so God is saying, I desire Israel to participate, to have fellowship, to, to experience the fullness of my peace, the fullness of my life, the fullness of my blessings for them. And the way I desire to, to express that to you is for you to come to my temple to bring a gift that you might share a meal in my presence. So Leviticus 3 says that in a fellowship offering, the lamb or the goat was brought there to the tabernacle and it was divided up into sections. Portion of it was given for the priest to offer to the Lord. Another portion was given to the priest to roast and to eat themselves as the priesthood. But then the larger portion of the animal was returned to the worshiper after it had been roasted and cooked in the temple, in the tabernacle. And it was to be consumed, it was to be eaten there in the presence of God. I love the picture provided by Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy speaks about these kinds of fellowship offerings coming and being brought into the house of the Lord. And Deuteronomy 12 says this, You shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in all which the Lord has blessed you. And the idea here is that in calling Israel to offer sacrifice to him, God desires not only to make atonement for sin, but God wants us to be with him. He wants us to, to linger with him over a fine meal in his presence. He is a God of holy hospitality. You have to remember that Israel survived primarily as a dairy culture. They milked their animals. They rarely slaughtered an animal. It was too costly for them. And so meat was only eaten on very special occasions, rarely. But coming to the house of the Lord was just such an occasion. I think it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's this idea that God wants to be with us, to dine with us, to, to have us with him. And to celebrate his incredible abundance and blessings. So God delights in blessing his people, in being near to his people, in making atonement for his people possible. 
And as chapters 4 and 5 go on to remind us, one of the great blessings and provisions God has given his people is this atonement for sin. Is his desire to to cleanse his people and to remove their guilt and to remove the, the burden of unintended sin. Look with me briefly at chapters 4 and chapters 5 where Leviticus describes two different forms of sin offerings that were given. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, and then all of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 go on to 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 describe a variety of different kinds of offerings that could be given for various types of sin. And they they describe in each of these occasions what the appropriate offering was. The idea in these two chapters, chapters 4 and chapter 5, is that unintended sin or other kinds of impurity could disqualify a worshiper from coming into the presence of a holy God. And it may seem foreign to us today, but even things like uh, the proximity of a person to uh, someone who has died or the corpse of an animal, to come into contact with, with certain kinds of bodily fluids, right? they could compromise that sense of, of set-apartness, that sense of otherness, the sense of holiness that, that was to be revered. ...and respected when entering the presence of God. And I think Dom talked quite a lot about that last week... ...about about the holiness of God being the otherness of God... ...the godness of God. His his holy otherness that we need to to revere that... and, ...and to take that seriously. So in chapter 4 we have a number of different offerings... ...purification offerings described... And they were given to set a person or to set a priest or even to set the whole nation of Israel apart. To make them holy like their God. But the means by which that set-apartness was able to happen was always through the lifeblood of an animal, of a sacrifice. Leviticus 4 tells us that if a lay person needed to be set apart, needed to be cleansed of their sin, then they were to take the blood of a goat, and the priest was to take that blood and to smear it on the horns of the altar, kind of in the courtyard of the tabernacle, the outer courtyard. If it was a priest of the people, it was to be the blood of a bull. And it was not to be smeared on the the horns of the altar in the courtyard, it was to be taken into the, the inner building of the tabernacle... And it was to be sprinkled on the veil that hung there. That separated the priests from the Holy of Holies where the Ark rested. But if if what needed to be set apart, what needed to be dealt with were the sins of the entire nation. Then once each year on the Day of Atonement. Which we'll speak in more detail about later this summer. On that day... The blood was to be taken not by any any priest, but only by the high priest. And he was to go through the outer courtyard into that inner sanctum, past the veil, and into the Holy of Holies with that blood. And he was to take 
the blood of that offering and to place it, to sprinkle it before the mercy seat of God, before, before the place where God's glory dwelt tangibly, physically. And that blood was to atone for, it was to set apart, it was to make an entire nation of people holy, to reckon with their sin. Chapter 4 describes these kinds of purification offerings, and then chapter 5 deals with a second kind of sin offering, and that was particularly to deal with the guilt of having sinned against God, or against someone made in the image of God, a brother or sister. Leviticus 5, 14 and 15 says, The Lord said to Moses, When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. That's a, a means of measurement. It is a guilt offering. In this case, again, the idea was that if a worshiper became aware of an offense they had committed either against God or against another member of of the community, they were to first go and make restitution, this passage will go on to say. They're, They're to try to set things right in whatever way they are able, to repay the debt or to repay the offense if it was against a neighbor. But even after restitution or reparation was made, there was a a debt that remained before the presence of God. And that debt was to be paid by coming to the tabernacle, coming to worship in the spirit of repentance and offering a lamb before God, a lamb without defect. When we come to later portions of scripture like Isaiah 53, we find a lamb slain for Israel's debt, for Israel's sin, given as a guilt offering in order to make a kind of restitution that the people of God were not able to make themselves. So we see that that God provides a means, a, a way for offerings to be brought to deal with the guilt of sin as well. So in the past 20 minutes or so, I've I've tried to move very quickly through these five different forms of offering. Things that that were outlined for Israel to do, and I think God gives them as, as a gift to Israel because he wants them to come to him. He wants these offerings to draw them into his presence, to come into his house, to be at his table. We've described offerings to make atonement, offerings to renew a covenant with God, offerings to celebrate the peace and the blessings of God, and offerings to deal with our sin. But if I had to to guess, my suspicion is that none of us in this sanctuary today have ever done any of these things. Right? Have any of you ever brought a big sack of flour to worship on Sunday morning? Or brought you know, some livestock along with you? Probably not. All right, no goats, no bulls, no grain. Why is that? 
Well, I think it's because today, as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that God has provided his own offering for us. Right? An offering that essentially fulfills the need for burnt offerings and sin offerings and fellowship offerings. Right? It, it speaks to it. It inhabits it. It fills up all of these different respects of what it means to be the people of God and to come into God's presence. Right? We believe and we place our faith in an offering that has purchased our freedom as a people. The offering that rescued us and, and drew us out of captivity and slavery. An offering that is meant to make us holy in every respect. And again, it's not an offering we bring. Right? It's an offering God has brought to us. And that offering is set before us at the Lord's table this morning. That offering is the Lamb of God, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, given for us to be his people. And the the gifts of the Lord's table have been given out of that that all-consuming, holy and and, and never-ending and ever-faithful love of God to have a people, to possess a people, for us to belong to him, to be like him, to linger in his presence. So I want to invite those who are serving at the Lord's table to come forward now. I want us to consider what it is to receive this offering from our God.